Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silverstein. Adam Silverstein here to lead you through these hard times. That it, with the only show that hops a 40 and checks its rollies so it can be bringing it, bringing it, bringing the hood to you. What you gonna do? That's right. Getting Over is back with our second show of the week, breaking down everything that's happened in the Wednesday Night Wars between NXT and AEW. Before we get to all of that, the normal process goes five-star ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine wrestling audio. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please tell a friend, a family member, a coworker, anyone that you know who loves professional wrestling, tell them about getting over, send them the subscribe link, retweet the shows, let them know what you like listening to, help us grow. Every single thing you do to help the show is much appreciated. And on that note, don't forget to listen to Tuesday's show where I have a fantastic one-on-one interview with former NXT Women's Champion Rhea Ripley. It looks like she will be competing for the NXT Women's Championship in a triple threat match at TakeOver in your house coming up on June 7th. So excited to see her in that match. Excited for you to all listen to Tuesday's show. We don't just speak to Rhea Ripley. That's actually at the end of the show. We break down everything that happened in Raw and SmackDown for WWE over the last week. So very important that you listen to that show. Now, the Silver King is riding solo once again today to break down everything that happened on Wednesday night from NXT and on AEW Dynamite. And over the last couple of weeks, you know, we have really shifted back and forth. You know, two weeks ago, it was pretty clear that AEW Dynamite, you know, put out one of its best shows ever, fans or no fans. Uh, It was just an absolutely fantastic episode of Dynamite. Last week, kind of came back and pooped the bed a little bit, you know, not nearly as impressive, not as exciting of a watch. Uh, Meanwhile, NXT stepped its game up in a major way. So now we're sitting with the go-home show to AEW Dynamite, and we're left to wonder, did they deliver? Well, I think the answer is yes. They delivered a go-home quality show, but it most certainly did not live up to what they accomplished two weeks ago. NXT, on the other hand, they continued rolling, and it was a different type of show than we've seen recently. A lot of the prior shows have been about storyline development. This They got back to the wrestling this week, especially with those two NXT Cruiserweight uh, Championship Tournament matches for the interim title. Now, I, I do still have some issues with the NXT main events, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But before we get into that, we got to get into it ourselves. So welcome to the main event. <laughs> And because of that, we're actually going to start with NXT, which I felt put its best foot forward to start the show, having Karrion Cross come out uh, and, you know, very quickly dispose of his job or opponent. Tommaso Ciampa then square off with him in the ring face-to-face. I'm intrigued that they're going with this match so quickly for TakeOver. Uh, it sure does seem, though, that Ciampa will be putting Cross over right out of the gate. I'm okay with that. You know, Ciampa... He could lose to anyone, really, and, and wouldn't actually ding him long term. So he's probably the right person for this match. And, you know, I honestly, uh, for despite watching clips online, I don't have a huge frame of reference with Karrion Cross, the former Killer Cross. So I am interested to see what they do with him in this first ever match. He does look very good in the ring, strong, powerful. Certainly when you compare him to the rest of the NXT main event picture right now, which are mostly smaller dudes with the exception of Velveteen Dream. Um, you know, he, he does look huge, but, you know, I'm very curious to see what he does look like when you put him 
against the Velveteen Dream or Keith Lee or a Dominic uh, Dijakovic. So, you know, right now, I, I think they are treating and building him the right way. And I hope it continues with a win in that match. But, you know, we're going to get to that ultimate preview for NXT TakeOver in your house in the future. I did think uh, they changed the entrance a little bit this week. Charlotte did not lip sync the words as much as she did previously. She only kept it to a little bit. I thought it was I thought it was a downgrade. Uh, I really liked the idea of her doing the entire entrance. The other thing I did think was a nice touch is in that segment when you had Champa kind of on his way to the ring and you weren't sure whether he was going to enter or not. Scarlet going over to the ropes, the woman, uh, and opening the ropes for him to enter and face off with Karrion Cross, and that's not something you really see often. Usually, it's you know a man doing it for a woman for her to have that confidence not only in herself but that. Her husband would take care of this potential threat uh, in storyline to do that. I thought was very smart and unique and another thing that sets them apart. So I'm very excited uh, to see where they go with Karrion Cross and Tommaso Ciampa and this entire feud. Uh, you know, I did mention the last couple of weeks in the Cruiserweight tournament were relatively mediocre, but this week they came back at it. Two great matches. They really, really delivered uh, and were both were given a requisite time to happen. You know, they didn't rush them. They weren't seven-minute matches. We actually got to see four guys work over the course of the night, and I appreciated that. Elio de Fantasma over Akira Tozawa. It was the right call, certainly, in that match, and they are really trying their best to play up Fantasma as a face, which makes the heel turn and his association with that masked luchador kidnapping group even more obvious than it already was. I also thought there was a great spot in that match that I have never seen before. Maybe I'm not watching enough Lucha Libre, but you had Phantasma climb to the top of the steel steps and like lean his body over and hit a frog splash off the steps onto the ring apron. Just the fact that you can even do the maneuver of bringing your arms and legs together and then extending them again in such a short window of space. I thought that was incredible. So uh, just... Fantastic. He's great. He continues to impress me every week. I'm really excited to see what they do with him. And, and he's an interesting case because unlike some of the other luchadors in WWE, certainly Graham Metalik, um, Lindsay Dorado, Kalisto, uh, you know, Andrade, Angel Garza, etc. A lot of those guys do speak English quite well, uh, and some of them to a lesser extent, but all of them are able to get their point across. Phantasma, it does not seem like he speaks English. Now, I, I also, he's another person who I don't have a huge amount of experience with, but if he doesn't, the fact that they're still able to get him over to this degree has been pretty impressive. And it is going to be curious to me to see what his career trajectory is in WWE, because as you saw Monday night with Asuka and Kyrie Sane, Asuka, we know, can speak English. They just have never done a really good job with her in that regard. Kyrie Sane speaks it quite well, but has never given the opportunity, but you know she can. Uh, and, and, sh and in a situation like that segment they had on Monday, the championship celebration for Asuka, she was incredible. Not just the way she spoke, but simply she got every point across. She was funny. Um, you know, so if, if that is holding you back, someone like Phantasma, then what happens when you are done with NXT and WWE? And that, that's what I'm going to be really curious to see what they do uh, in that regard. But nevertheless, Phantasma over Tozawa was the right call. I, I loved the... Segment in the parking lot where Tozawa almost got kidnapped, uh, but Phantasma saved him again, kind of trying to divert you from what we know to be true regarding the storyline. 
Um, just impressed top to bottom. I do want to see Fantasma, though, get an edge. I do want him to win the tournament. I think he's the right person to be the interim Cruiserweight champion. And it is going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the coming weeks. I was a little bit surprised that Drake Maverick beat Kushida in the other match. But credit to both of them for telling the story of Kushida, who is clearly a face, bullying Maverick in the match because he's the better wrestler. And he should be. He should be more dominant in the actual match itself. But Maverick wanted it so much more that no matter what Kushida threw at him, he figured out a way to win. Obviously, the, the roll-up type uh, pinning predicament at the end got him the win. It's This is a really curious case because WWE is sure as shit giving Maverick an incredible send-off if they did not retain him. Not just because of the result of that match, but the promos that he has been cutting, that they've been airing on TV. These are not social media promos. And the one he did earlier in the sh show... If they were still thinking of getting rid of him, I don't know how you don't change your mind in that regard. I mean, this is clearly a guy you need to keep, and I don't want to say they've been underutilizing him because he has gotten a lot of TV time, but they need to figure out ways to use him, and they must retain him. At this point, it really would not make sense for them not to do so. It is a good booking as well for the triple threat match, uh, for the chance to advance out of the tournament to happen next week. It's smart and good booking. You know, I thought they were going to go with a a two-way tie or a three-way tie, and they ultimately did, and just try to come up with some tiebreaker, which is always an eye roll. But the fact that it's a three-way tie and each one of them has a win over the other, it creates the necessity for a triple threat match. So I am excited to see them go in that direction. Uh, something that did not excite me was the Shotzi Blackheart uh, vignette. Zero point zero. And I hate to use this word, but... It was completely cringeworthy. Nothing that she said during that vignette, and it was long and arduous. Nothing she said was believable. Even though that may be what she's really like, it felt entirely forced and fake. Like someone was role-playing what a punk rock girl would be instead of actually being one. You look at the difference between that vignette of Shotzi Blackheart and, and the way she's even presented when she comes down to the ring in that mini tank, it's, it's you know, it's cute. It, it, it's, um, it just doesn't feel genuine. And then just look at someone who effort, effortlessly is punk rock, like Ruby Riot, or to a slightly lesser extent, Rhea Ripley, and really not that much lesser of an extent. You believe they are what they are without them needing to tell you. With Shotzi, the fact that she had to, like, break down why she is the way she is, and the way she got that across, it was poorly acted. Because of that, it was poorly directed. Whoever put that together did not do a good job coaching her up to say what she needed to say. It was corny as hell. I appreciated that they spent the money, you know, for the tank. But the entire thing, I mean, go back and watch it again. Someone tweeted this at me, and I'm sorry I don't have your, um, your tweet on hand or your, your username. But it felt like it was a vignette like out of glow in the 80s. Like, like it was like, oh, this, this person's going to be a punk rock character. So let's corny it up and this is what she's going to be. That did not feel like a 2020 character, what we got from Shotzi Blackheart. I was extremely disappointed because I think she's great in the ring. I'm glad she's in NXT. I love that she's been given such a quick push and has had a fast rise. I believe she was in the Royal Rumble, if memory serves. And and the fact that she like was on TV the week she was signed, they clearly know what they have in her. But you got to present her better than they did in this vignette. It was just 
mind-numbingly bad, and it was almost insulting that they thought that they could get someone over with a vignette like that. People have tweeted me that they disagree, few and far between, but they have. Uh, just not a fan of this, and I've already spent too much time on it. It was a good idea moving immediately to the Matt Riddle versus Timothy Thatcher match inside of a cage. There was some hope that I had that it would be a little bit unique. Uh, if you remember, Ken Shamrock back in the day had a Lions Den match in WWE where I believe it was a, a rounded canvas with a cage that went up on all sides really high so that no one could get out. This just seems like it's going to be a steel cage match, which is a little bit disappointing, um, even though I do like the fact that the only way to win is submission or knockout, which means hopefully they aren't trying to climb out of it. Maybe there's no door or they close the door, they lock it, whatever the case might be. I, I do like the stipulation. It is the right type of match for these two to have. Uh, but I mean, any result other than Matt Riddle winning would really just take him down a peg unnecessarily. He really needs to win. His promo, uh, I forgot if he called him a putz or a schmuck, but whatever he called Thatcher, it was funny. And Riddle is just continues to be great. But that Thatcher promo, on the other hand, woof. I mean, he is a total charisma vacuum. I, I, you know, I heard that, hey, this guy's a great wrestler, but, you know, he's not that great on the mic when, when they signed him and people were telling me what he was going to be like. But, oh, boy, I mean, if, if that is an example of the type of promos you're going to get from Timothy Thatcher, you will never see him on the main roster. He will be NXT forever. That That's just not going to come across the way that WWE needs a guy like him to come across. Just look at the difference between him and, like, Cesaro, right? Like, Cesaro's incredible in the ring, and you may not love his promos, and at times they can be a little corny, but you believe him. Like, you you believe that this guy is the Swiss Superman, that he is a wrestling purist, I guess, which is his new gimmick. Thatcher, you're like, yeah, this guy's a mat technician for sure, but, like, when he talks, you just kind of start not believing it anymore. You're just like, oh... Okay, sure, man. I, well, I, I don't really have any good reason to root for you. Whereas Matt Riddle continuously gives you reasons to root for him. The dynamic between Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae continues to be exceedingly entertaining. I thought, though, moving into a couple's feud already with Keith Lee and Mia Yim just kind of feels unnecessary to me when Lee is so over on his own and people just want to see him wrestle. They want to see Keith Lee versus Johnny Gargano for the North American Championship. I have no issue with Candice LeRae against Mia Yim. I think that's a great mid-card feud. But to combine it so quickly, before the singles matches have happened, that really bothers me. I, you know, I'd much rather see Lee beat Gargano at, let's say, TakeOver in your house, and then the following week they attack, and then the week after that there's a mixed tag team match. That's just the way I would book it. it, it I, I think just going into the couples thing happened way too fast. On the other hand... I did think it was the right booking decision to give Roderick Strong a much-needed win over a legitimate opponent, even if it had to come against Dexter Loomis. That match allowed Loomis to continue looking strong by the way he shrugged off a lot of what Strong gave him. He continued to stare at him throughout the entire match, even as he started getting winded and, and, and knocked down and, and hurt. Um, and then the finish, you know, he got pinned, which is totally fine, but... He slithered right to Roderick Strong. It was so cool the way he slithered, slithered under the bottom rope and locked Strong in that, I guess, sleeper submission type of move and brings him down to the floor and he's just totally choking him out. Undisputed Era comes out, starts attacking him, kicking him, punching him, and he's just sitting up straight, like completely unaffected, like a psychopath. Loved it. Then you have Velveteen Dream come out and I was so happy that 
they didn't have Dream be a dumb face who just because Loomis got involved, you know, oh, you know, you purposely hurt my type, my big opportunity. I need to challenge you. Then they fight. The Undisputed Era attacks them. And then they end up teaming up and you go forward. I don't need that. I don't need a Dexter Loomis Velveteen Dream four minute match before an interference. This way, it made sense. You just had Dream say, look, I understand what happened here. I'm going to come out and save you from Undisputed Era. We're going to team up presumably next week. I assume we're going to get some type of tag team match ahead of the pay-per-view. The elbow drop was a real aggressive move and uh, a great sight on TV. But if you're going to use a crash pad and you're going to do a camera cut, I'd almost rather you not do it because it was so obviously fake that it took me out of what was already a great segment. Nevertheless, the end of the segment with Dream celebrating on the rope, Loomis cradling Roderick Strong's head and like petting him and, and, and putting his fingers through his hair. It was really awesome. And NXT actually took a great picture of it and posted it on their Twitter account. If you haven't seen it yet, be sure to go see it. It's a pretty creepy picture and it, it works well to tell the story of Dexter Loomis' Velveteen Dream and the feud with Undisputed Era. Uh, Adam Cole, immediately after NXT went off the air, he went on Twitter and shot a video and said next week, originally it was going to be a live celebration of his one-year championship, the day, you know, 365 days. Instead, he's going to do a live negotiation with William Regal. That intrigues me. I love seeing William Regal on the screen. As we've noted, he's by far the best authority figure that has existed in wrestling over the last, you know, what, decade? I mean, he he has by far been the best commissioner, general manager, whatever you want to call that role on any of WWE's TV properties. So to see him and Cole go back and forth, it makes me curious to see what they're going to settle on. Maybe a stipulation match against Cole at uh, In Your House, which is my expectation. And if that's the case, and it is Velveteen Dream, do we see Velveteen Dream finally win the NXT Championship? So I have a lot of questions, a lot of intrigue, and I'm excited to see what happens next week on NXT. But before we get out of NXT, um, I definitely laughed out loud on the show because last week when I was talking about the dearth of tag teams in NXT, I randomly mentioned Ever-Rise. Like, I, I don't even know how they came to my head. And suddenly they were on TV this week. I did, though, forget, yes, about Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch as a clear, you know, face tag team that's on NXT. So that is one that I missed that I guess would factor into the picture. But Imperium versus Lorcan and Birch, you know, that doesn't really do much for me. And still, they're basically the only active face team on the brand right now. So NXT really needs to figure out a way to put some tag teams together. Uh, That match itself just showed you the dearth of tag teams that they have. I mean, you know, sure, we haven't even seen them in weeks. Two weeks in a row, we have them out you know, with uh, Malcolm Bivens, and now they've disappeared. And yeah, I know they were trying to go to this thing with Riddle, but then Riddle ends up teaming with Thatcher and losing to Imperium. So that's all confusing. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing with the tag team picture. That has been a disappointment on NXT, considering how much the tag teams have carried the water in that brand over the last few years. Uh, You know, to close on a sour note, Another week with the main event starting with less than 10 minutes left. It's infuriating to me. You know, NXT is all about the in-ring product. They tell you that by the way they open the show every week with a match. There is such a showcase of in-ring wrestling and, and them repeating that we are a wrestling show, the best wrestling show. But then give us at least 15 minutes of a main event every week. AEW is doing a great job with this. Their, their main events are starting with anywhere from like 
27 to 23 minutes left. And sometimes they go to a commercial before that, and then you get a 20-minute final segment. Again, sometimes there's a commercial in there as well. But then, you know, you get the picture in the box, so you're still following along the action, and you're watching the end of the show. But you're actually getting a main event that is a legitimate, significant wrestling match. And sometimes other things happen, as it did this week, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Both NXT, this is now three weeks in a row, where the main event has been anywhere from 10 to 13 minutes. And that's like from announcing the match. So bringing them down to the ring, getting them in there. If there's a title on the line, doing that whole announcement. And then starting the match with like 11 minutes left. That's not what I want from a wrestling show. And I I mean, I was watching the prior segment, the uh, Cruiserweight match with Drake Maverick and Kushida. It was still going on with 20 minutes left in the show. Then they had already advertised the Damian Priest promo. So you come back from commercial, and before you get to the main event, you get a Damian Priest promo. So by the time they actually got to the main event, I believe there were 10 minutes left in the entire show. So you knew that, A, you're not going to get a strong match from Rhea Ripley and Io Shirai, despite them making it the main event and promoting it all week long. Then they actually give you the match, and just as it's starting to get hot, you look at your clock, and you're like, oh, there's only one minute left. It's time for Charlotte Flair to interrupt. And you knew that was going to happen. So I'm not even mad that that happened. It was it was clearly the booking they were going to do. But I didn't even get a match out of it. I want to see Ripley and Shirai one-on-one, especially... I mean, I did speak to her earlier in the week, but it reminded me of the May Young Classic match, which I believe was like 17 or 19 minutes in the second May Young Classic. And it was great. They tore the house down. So why am I not getting a 15 minutes of Ripley and Shirai and it's hot... And, and everyone's really excited. Granted, there's no fans, but Morrow's going crazy. And then, then you do the finish with Charlotte Flair, and it's, and it's a little deflating. Oh, man, I really want to see this. Okay, but I'm going to get the triple threat, you know, for the title at, at TakeOver. Okay, that's cool. I'm excited for it. So, you know, just to, to give us such a, a light taste and to know that the main event is going to be so short, I would have much rather them started that main event like 17 minutes left in the show, run it for 14, have Charlotte interfere, and then have that interference take up the final three minutes of the show. So me as a viewer is surprised that A, I didn't get a finish, and B, that they're not just doing a quick interference and ending the show. They're building it. They make a title announcement. And, you know, you get some more juice and and your, your, your investment in the show and watching NXT for two hours is paid off. Instead, you get an interference, the show ends, and that's about it. So in terms of the booking itself, I am okay with it because the triple threat match is actually what I do want to see. But a heel like Charlotte Flair in this situation should not be so stupid because she interfered for no reason. And because she interfered for no reason, she's basically forcing the hand to make it a triple threat match instead of one-on-one, which on its surface reduces the heel's chance of retaining the title, 33% versus 50%. We all know the Steiner math promo. So You know, from a heel, she shouldn't be that stupid. There wasn't a reason to interfere. It just happened out of nowhere. Whereas Rhea Ripley the week prior did have a reason because Charlotte forced a disqualification, was beating the hell out of Io Shirai, and Rhea saw it as an opportunity to come down and and settle the score. So, so, you know, those are my issues with the main event. Um, For people saying Charlotte has been way too overexposed recently, that's true. And I do think that is the reason that at In Your House, she will drop the title. The question is, how does it happen? Does Io Shirai pin Charlotte Flair or Rhea Ripley? Yeah, I don't really think so. So I, my guess is that we're going to have Ripley pinning Shirai at the pay-per-view, 
taking the title back, and then we get a one-on-one feud with them. And hopefully it takes us to a point where I get a 20-minute Io Shirai Rhea Ripley match. Okay, moving into the second part of the main event, AEW Dynamite. Another really solid show from AEW. On Wednesday, I saw a couple people like freaking out about it on Twitter. I didn't think it was that good, but it was a really solid show, all things considered. Really head-to-head with NXT. Maybe just half a letter grade below if if we were grading it in that way. I love the inner circle coming out of the limo to start the show. They are everything that you want a faction to be. They The way they operate, play off each other. They each kind of have their own little individual gimmick, but together as a unit are completely single focused. I love the way they do that. Uh, moving into the main event, that way we can keep the topics together. I am continually impressed with how healthy Matt Hardy looks in the ring, how well he's moving. I enjoyed the main event completely with Sammy Guevara. I'm glad Hardy went over in his first singles match, and I really liked the way Guevara avoided one of the twist of fates where he basically did a handstand instead of falling down and forced Hardy to then hit it later in the match for the pin. That was really cool. You know, after the match, and the match was long, you know, it was like a good 17 minute match. After the match, they were all just immediately at the stadium uh, to give you a preview of the stadium stampede. And I thought it was really hysterical that, and I think not purposely hysterical, by the way, that They're holding Kenny Omega back. His shirt is torn. He looks hurt. Jericho's holding a bat. And Jake Hager thinks, I'm going to really injure Kenny Omega. I'm going to throw a bucket of water on him. I I just, I was was like, what damage is that doing? You know, if anything, like considering Kenny's hair, he shakes that right off and he's dry again. You know what I mean? So it was just so weird that he did that. It obviously had no effect. It seemed completely unnecessary. You're holding him back to get water thrown on him, whatever. But Jericho did hit him hit him with the bat, and things escalated from there. The brawl, to give us a taste of what we can expect from the stadium stampede, was fantastic. I loved, like, in the background, you see this dude running, and you're, you're like, who the hell is this? And all of a sudden, it comes into focus. That is Hangman Page, seemingly running, like, a 4.5 40-yard dash in cowboy boots, which was incredibly impressive, and nailing that clothesline, that was awesome. Uh, you know, some of the moves that the elite did off the parts of the stadium, especially the Young Bucks, it was risky, you know, considering you're having the match in a couple days. Uh, apparently, Matt Jackson actually hurt his rib, and they're not sure what he did, maybe a con- contusion or a break or something like that, but he hurt himself. Apparently, he's still able to go in the stadium stampede match itself, uh, but he was clearly favoring it afterward, and it just seemed a little bit unnecessary for that to happen. Nevertheless, it was a great shot to close the show with the elite kind of there in one end zone and Hangman Page walking, I just said it like JR did, Hangman Page uh, walking down through that you know end zone tunnel out the back and just kind of despondent and, and continuing his character. We're not exactly sure what's going to happen with him. We're going to talk more about that in a bit where we're going to have on the show in a few minutes a full AEW Double or Nothing preview. So I am going to close it right there. Uh, just to do a little bit more on Dynamite itself. They did give us John Moxley to open the show instead of Cody, which I've been begging for for a few weeks. And that was a really good showcase for Mox. It was a really good decision on AEW's part to open with Moxley. But I gotta say, as good as Mox is, I enjoyed what he did in the match to 10 and, and it all made sense. The Dark Order stuff and Brody Lee, it's continuing to bore me to tears. I don't like it. I don't believe in it. Where are the other two members of Dark Order, like the main guys? They haven't been there in weeks. 
I get it, coronavirus and stuff. And, and maybe they're not going to be there. Maybe they have families they don't want to leave. I, no issue with all of it. But it just to make such a drastic change and not explain it in storyline bothers me. I don't think Brody Lee's doing a good job with the promos getting himself over. I think he's very good in the ring, but he's just, he's not making me believe this is a main event feud and he's not making me believe there's any chance he wins the title. And as I've noted before, the fact that he has kidnapped the title and stolen it from Mox, that has been so overdone in professional wrestling that it was a shame that they decided to go to it so quickly. Uh, We're also seeing far too much of Marco Stunt in the ring and not nearly enough of Jungle Boy or Luchasaurus. It's completely backwards how it should be working. And that's despite Marco Stunt growing on me. It's not that I ever didn't like him, but I used to just not... I liked him as part of the trio, not necessarily being an in-ring competitor. But I do enjoy the way he works, and, and I do think he's talented. But I don't need to see him wrestle every other week. This is a guy who should almost be treated like Orange Cassidy in a way, where you see him wrestle... Every once in a while, and when you do, he really surprises you how far he takes his opponent until he ultimately loses. MJF, there was no way he was ever going to lose that match. It was also completely ass-backwards that Wardlow is there the entire match for MJF, but Stunt's partners, again, Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus, who you would expect would be more protective over a more diminutive guy going up against an MJF with Wardlow, they're not ringside the entire time. Why Why would they not be ringside? That makes zero sense. So just bad storytelling there. I was also surprised that Jake Roberts was more coherent, at least at the beginning of that sit-down segment, than Arn Anderson, even though Double A did come around at the end uh, with a couple solid lines in the close there. But I don't need two guys, a combined 125 years old, just talking on behalf of their wrestlers, in the ring especially. If they had done well-produced interview segments where you had Arn sitting next to Cody and Jake sitting next to Lance Archer. Maybe Cody is so emotionally invested that he's not speaking. So Arn is speaking for him. And you had those types of video packages. Then you're getting me amped up and excited for this match. But to just have Archer and Arn Anderson sitting across, but to just have Jake Roberts and Arn Anderson sitting across a really long table from each other with Tony Schiavone in between and trying to trade insults and barbs back and forth, it it really didn't catch my attention. And I think it was a big misstep for AEW to do that right in the middle of the show. Plus, after being overexposed to Cody and and Lance Archer, now we just don't see either of them on the go-home show at all. I mean, I'm assuming they're going to save it for the countdown, which they're going to do on Friday. But how do you not have them at all on the show? When you're hyping up the TNT Championship as a huge match, it's certainly been booked better than the world title match. So to not have either of them on the show was a mistake to do that in the ring instead of pre-taped interview vignettes or even a pre-taped back and forth with Jim Ross or Shivani sitting between them in a, in a club room or over lunch or something like that. Anything else would have been better with those two than just putting them out in the middle of a ring with no fans and just kind of saying, go talk to each other and insult each other. That did not work for me. On the other hand, the vignettes from Pac and Darby Allen were perfect, and they were a really good way to keep the characters alive without them being on weekly TV, particularly Pac, who obviously is in the UK and we don't know when he's going to be back. Uh, there is some talk that he might be the mystery entrant in that casino ladder match, and that's certainly possible, but you know, I don't see travel happening from Europe right now, and it would be a surprise to me if he was able to make it. 
Allen, though, you know, we'll talk about him a little bit later, but uh, he, it, his vignettes aren't necessarily great in that they draw me in and make me care about his character more, but they're so uniquely shot and interesting that they do at least catch my attention and say, wait, what's happening right now on my TV? Like maybe I'm typing on the computer or I'm writing up my notes for this show and it makes me, forces me to look up and kind of say, oh, I need to watch this. It's something different that's happening on my TV. And because of that, I'm enjoying what they're doing with Darby Allen. I did enjoy the Phoenix against Cassidy match, but I didn't think it was necessarily anything hugely special, nor did it need to be. It's just a you know regular match on a TV show. The step-up springboard leg drop from Phoenix was exceptionally impressive. And it reminded me of the Phantasma Frog Splash. I mentioned from NXT that it's just one of those moves that you see it and you're like, wow, I'm going to remember that. That's how cool it was. I kind of want to see Phoenix against, against Grand Metalik in a match where maybe there's even an extra set of ring ropes for no reason, like in the middle of the ring. I just want to see these guys like do moves off ropes against one another, do them simultaneously. They, they are both incredible. Phoenix is smoother. Metalik probably takes greater risks when given the opportunity, not necessarily in WWE. But I just want to see like these two guys in a match together, like 20 minutes. I, I'm really curious what they would do. The brawl after that match, though, was a total eye roll for me. There, Not only were there three completely set up and choreographed high-risk maneuvers, but they were all in the exact same spot. And obviously, one of the big stories coming out of Dynamite is Phoenix badly missed his. He definitely was a little bit short of the group of guys. So that is a little bit to blame on him. But no one made an adjustment, and he landed hard on his right hip to the point where... I mean, you would think he might have broken his hip. Now, apparently he didn't. And according to Dave Meltzer, he will be okay to go for the casino ladder match. But if that's the case, he is extremely lucky. That was really bad. And that was, again, as I mentioned, Matt Jackson hurt himself earlier. You also had uh, Britt Baker, who clearly injured her knee in that tag team women's match. I'm not even going to talk about that match because uh, after praising the women's division a week ago, you know, I just thought it took a step back there. Well, we'll talk more about the women's division momentarily. Uh, to close up our actual dynamite talk, though, Sean Spears news. Uh, the man just cannot find a way to get over. This was no good, and it certainly was not original. We've seen stuff like this numerous times. Uh, who cares about Sean Spears doing news updates? Who cares about Sean Spears versus Dustin Rhodes coming out of nowhere? Let's move on to the AEW Double or Nothing preview, where we'll talk about that match at the end. The main card for Double or Nothing is solid enough, but the undercard for me is severely lacking, again, for a pay-per-view that they're asking you to pay $50 for, and they're only holding once every, every quarter. I get the money. Uh, we mentioned I talked about this on a prior show. You know, they don't have a lot of ticket, re- they don't have any ticket revenue coming in right now, and they are just breaking even, at least according to reports. So they can't necessarily afford to give away a pay-per-view for $9.99 or $19.99. But I don't think it would have been that crazy to go $29.99 or $39.99 or even cut the difference, $34.99, and say, look, we know this is not the double or nothing that we had scheduled and that we had promised you. We're still going to give you a damn good show. We still want you to support the company. But for them to ask a normal person to spend $50 for that show um, in the way that they've booked it, I do think it's going to be good and entertaining. But I'm telling you, if I was just a fan and I did not have a podcast that I needed to kind of 
communicate my thoughts on wrestling to a lot of people, I would not pay $50 for this show. That said, I am excited about the card, and I do think it's going to be a really good pay-per-view. The stadium looks really cool having the Elite logo in one end zone and presumably the Inner Circle logo in the other end zone. If not that, then at least on the video board, you did see that uh, at the beginning of that segment on Wednesday night, and you also saw it the week prior. Now, Jim Ross also said that the ring for the stadium stampede will be at the 50-yard line. And it does make me wonder because I don't think AEW has two rings in Jacksonville. They might, though, because certainly it's the headquarters of their operation. But it does make me wonder if they might pre-tape the stadium stampede, um, you know, have the ring set up there, maybe tape that on Friday, then move the ring back to Daly's place and do the rest of the show live on Saturday. So that is a curiosity for me. But the stadium stampede match is the elite plus Matt Hardy against the inner circle. And they started the year, they started 2020 with this storyline about whether the elite is indeed still elite, whether it is all aligned. But then they closed Dynamite, you know, still with Hangman Page walking away from the group after saving them. Ultimately, Page is always there when it counts, just not further than that. And I don't see him really turning heel. So because of that, I'm going to have to go with the elite beating the inner circle, even though AEW has been reluctant to put them over as a group to this point. Clearly, they were going to do that blood and guts match on a regular TV show. So I don't know what was actually planned for Double or Nothing between these groups. But because we are where we are with these groups and with this match, I just think having the Elite win is the right call. The Inner Circle has been completely dominant. Them losing to the Elite in a match like this, I don't think hurts them in any major way. And I do think it's time for the faces to kind of go over. But it it is curious to me what ultimately they're going to do with Hangman Page. And of course, you still have Cody who continues to operate outside of the elite picture uh, in his own feuds and with his own family stuff. And it makes you wonder, like, have they actually removed him from the elite? Matt Hardy, is he actually in the elite or is he still a separate entity? I get the storyline on why he's helping the Bucks because they helped him. Um, But there's a lot of just loose ends. And from a storyline perspective, a lot of things that I'm still wondering about. The AEW Championship match, John Moxley against Brody Lee, and I mentioned it earlier, the interest for me is really minimal in this match, which is a shame because it's really Moxley's first pay-per-view title defense. The match will probably be good from a ring standpoint, considering Brody Lee can definitely go. But ultimately, when I'm picking it, I have to go with Moxley retaining, maybe getting some help from someone, I don't even know who, fighting off the minions. Just don't call them knights, which is what I saw AEW did on Wednesday. Not the best connotation, so let's stay away from that. TNT Championship match, Cody against Lance Archer. You know, AEW, they really have been throwing us for a loop sometimes, such as putting MJF over Cody and Cody losing the match to Chris Jericho that not only had the AEW title on the line, but the stipulation that he could never fight for it again if he lost. But right now, Cody remains their biggest face. And the biggest face in the company, in storyline is a total loser. He's lost every major feud he's had, and now he's going for a TNT championship that he's built up to be this prestigious title um, that is not only the only one he's qualified for at this point from a singles perspective, but has history with wrestling being on Turner for all these years, and his father booking for WCW, and so on and so forth. So because I don't think they're going to turn Cody, and because we do have Mike Tyson there, 
And JR made it very clear on Dynamite. He said 10 times, Tyson's not just going to stand there the entire time. I do think ultimately they're going to go with Cody winning the TNT Championship over Lance Archer. And who knows? Maybe in a month, Archer ends up being the first challenger and wins it off of him. But I do think there is a prestige to having the first ever TNT champion be Cody. Certainly AEW hopes it's around for a long time. They hope the title is around for a long time. This would go a long way to making that matter. Women's Championship, Nyla Rose defending against Hikaru Shida. You know, Shida's done a really great job helping strengthen the women's division, but the no disqualification, no countout stipulation, it should help Rose retain here. And I continue to struggle to see a top-tier face in this division, which is what I think is hurting, hurting the women more than anything else. Casino ladder match included in this Darby Allen, Colt Cabana, Orange Cassidy, Phoenix, Scorpio Sky, Kip Sabian, Frank Kazarian, and Luchasaurus against a mystery opponent. There's one more person. There is some speculation the mystery opponent might be Brian Cage, although in a ladder match, I'm not sure that's the best way to debut him. Uh, by process of elimination, though, I do come down to Darby Allen and Phoenix. And while I was picking Allen to win anyway, the bump Phoenix took on Wednesday certainly doesn't help me uh, lean another direction. My only concern with Allen is they could just have him go crazy and like be at the top of the ladder, ready to take the coin. And then he turns around and sees people and does a coffin drop from like 20 feet in the air and then loses the match. So one of those two things is happening. Either he's winning or he's going to do a move like that that's going to be spectacular, but also takes him out of it. MJF against Jungle Boy. I don't care one bit about the match. Uh, MJF losing would make zero sense. So I will pick MJF to win. Britt Baker against Chris Statlander. You know, it's booked in a way that Statlander should win, considering Baker had locked her in that, you know, claw submission and refused to remove it previously. But I just don't think that you can take Britt Baker, who's riding high right now and is really starting to establish herself and have her lose. So I would book it with finding an underhanded way for Britt Baker to win. And I ultimately think that is what will happen. There is the consideration, of course, that Brandy could get involved somehow, considering, you know, Britt was kind of help, helping out Jake and Lance Archer previously. So maybe Brandy comes in and, and helps Statlander win, but hopefully they keep it clean. And I do hope Baker figures out an underhanded way to win. Dustin Rhodes against Sean Spears. Wow. Uh, who really cares? I will go with Spears because if he loses this one, he's even deader than he already is character-wise. Dustin Rhodes, I mean, I love him. You know, he's great historically. He's a legend. Um, the fact that he just continues to be in pay-per-view matches, even in early matches like this, I just wish they would figure out a way to book with some of these other people. Private Party against Best Friends at the Buy-In. I'm not exactly sure why this match is for the number one contendership out of nowhere, especially when Private Party haven't been on TV in months. But... It should be a really good match, and it does have my interest for that reason. I've said that best friends don't really make me care about their matches, and that is true, but I do appreciate their ability. So them and Private Party together, this buy-in match should be fantastic. All right, let's move into getting overtime where I answer some DMs, share some thoughts off-topic about other things, uh, and then we will close out the show. First up, Black Saber Jr. at underscore Black Saber Jr., Heading into TakeOver, it's seeming like each of the matches is Old Guard versus Young Guard. Do you think we finally see another mass exodus? I don't, actually. Um, you know, they have called people up to WWE, quote-unquote, main roster, primary brands, let's call it. They've already done it uh, post-WrestleMania. I do think there is a chance that you can always get one or two more names 
coming in after SummerSlam, maybe during the draft or the shakeup or whatever they end up doing in October. But I think what NXT is focused on right now is establishing new stars, which is long overdue. You know, we had a good 18 months where not much changed in terms, in terms of the main event picture for a couple of the primary titles. And despite them hiring a lot of new faces, we're just starting to see them actually get time on TV. A Dexter Loomis, uh, who actually isn't a new hire, but a Dexter Loomis, you know, mentioned earlier, Shotzi Blackheart is relatively new. Timothy Thatcher, they just announced a couple months ago. So they are starting to circulate some of this new talent on TV. And for me, what this takeover in your house is about, it's not about an exodus. It's just about establishing new stars. I think they're going to do that, and I hope they continue to do it. Adam X. Parsons, at Adam X. Parsons, he writes in, do you think AEW would benefit from having a heel commentator on its show? I actually don't think that's necessary either. Uh, NXT doesn't have one right now with Nigel not working, just as a comparison's sake, and it's totally fine. I did think it was weird, um, the announcing group at NXT, by the way, on Wednesday, but previously with kind of Tom being host and Morrow and Beth Phoenix taping from home, you know, sat from satellite, I guess, it, it has been working pretty well. But back to AEW, I actually like the team as it's constituted. JR has really found his place after a rough first few weeks, and that was back in 2019. Um, but his voice adds such gravitas to the show. You know you're watching real professional wrestling when Jim Ross is on the call. Tony taking on a bigger role, both in terms of on the show itself and during commentary, during the matches, I'm liking that as well. And Excalibur, you know, he's not necessarily my favorite, but he definitely has his place there as an analyst, calling out the moves, talking about history and, you know, basically bringing everything together, bridging the gap. So I like the AEW commentary team as it is. The heel commentary is not necessary. I did think, J uh, sorry, Chris Jericho did a fantastic job when he subbed in. And I don't think it would hurt once the pandemic is over to have guest people on commentary at different parts during the show to kind of lend that heel, you know, accent, for lack of a better term, to the broadcast, a Jericho, a Britt Baker, um, a J uh, Jake Roberts, something like that. But I don't think it needs to be there constantly. And AEW commentary, for some of the issues I may have with them, some of my concerns, that is not one of them. Uh, to wrap up a couple more quick notes before we get out of here, Seth Rollins was on the Corey Graves podcast, and he actually addressed a lot of the misogynistic stuff that Jim Cornette said. He said it hurt him on a true personal level because he really liked Cornette growing up. And he was holding out hope that despite everything that Cornette has said and done recently, that there was still sh some shred of decency left in him. But what Rollins told Graves is that he will never accept an apology. He doesn't want to hear from him. And basically, he's just cut Cornette out completely. Uh, basically, Cornette said a bunch of stuff about Becky, her pregnancy, you know, and it all happening at the top of her career. Um, that was ridiculous. And as Rollins said, and it's worth repeating, that kind of mentality does need to be weeded out of culture. And that's not a PC thing. That's just a human thing. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the fact that Rollins even has to go out and say any of this is a joke. I'm just glad that Becky didn't mention it herself um, because you don't, I, did, I do not want any type of Twitter war of, world, of words between Jim Cornette and Becky. The fact that Seth went on the podcast and just kind of quashed it like this, I thought it was the best way. So it is a good interview with Seth Rollins uh, on the Corey Graves podcast. So if you're going to listen to something else and it's not New Day and it's not this show, uh, go ahead and give that a quick peek. I also, personal news, for the first time, 
I bought a Lucha Libre mask coming straight from Mexico. I should get it in about two weeks. It is a Pentagon mask, so I'm really excited to receive it. I have to figure out something to put it on, some type of uh, mannequin head or whatever. If anyone has a really good suggestion, uh, please let me know. But I am building out my office in my house. I'm building out a bookcase, and I figured on the bookcase, I do have the ECW World Heavyweight Championship. I have a handful of Funko Pops. I have some small title belts from WWE. Yes, the actual physical item is called the belt. Uh, but I have some of the small ones. They basically fit around your wrist that WWE has sent me over the years for promotional reasons. And I do have a couple WrestleMania skulls. It's something that they have started doing over the last couple of years, I believe ever since the New Orleans WrestleMania. Uh, although I actually had two from that show, a green and, and a purple one and a black one with gold sparkles all over it. And the dog uh, knocked it off the table one time and completely shattered it. They don't sell it anymore. So I'm down a WrestleMania skull. I hope to find it one day. I don't think I ever will. But nevertheless, uh, WrestleMania Skulls, uh, again, the ECW Championship, this Lucha Head, I got to find or figure out one other wrestling item. And maybe it'll just be, just be some Funko Pops, but got to figure out a way to build out this bookcase. When it is done, I will take a picture and share it on social media. Quick note from the challenge. Again, I said one liner really quick because I know a lot of you don't care at all. This week's episode, exceedingly interesting. I did think Jordan got absolutely screwed. Um, just a... You know, them's the breaks in the challenge, right? Like you aren't necessarily guaranteed a, a good position in a head-to-head -head challenge. But Jordan asking him to do a feat of strength where that requires two hands where when he only has one and him still giving it, it his all, basically cracking the AC joint or separating or doing something, spraining the AC joint in his shoulder in round one and still coming back for round two. Yes, he's a prick. Yes. He can be grading. He has a huge ego and attitude. All that is true. But Jordan is an all-time challenge competitor. Shout out to him for giving it a go. Shout out to him for just being a badass mofo. And that's what you saw once again on the challenge this week. So big shout out to him. Last but not least on today's show, I did finish Breaking Bad. Five seasons in six days. Uh, definitely one of the best series of all time. There's no question about it. But it's tough for me right now to compare. Because The Wire... As great as it is, what makes it so great is its importance, how unique it is, and what it means from a larger artistic perspective. It is the most important show that I've ever seen. True Detective had the best single season of a show that I've ever seen. Breaking Bad is top-tier television, but it's tough for me right now to differentiate it among The Wire, The Sopranos, Mr. Robot... Uh, which I think is criminally underrated, The West Wing. I probably should see Mad Men before I make any more declarations like best show ever. Game of Thrones was certainly headed in that direction, and it would have been atop the list if it not been for the last two seasons. Boardwalk Empire was fantastic. Um, you know, Narcos, I think, is really good. 24, some seasons of 24 were absolutely incredible as a series. It doesn't really hold a candle, but, man, seasons one through three are just outstanding television. So it is kind of tough for me to say that Breaking Bad is definitively the best show I've ever seen. It's really good. Um, I don't think any one season was better than the True Detective season. The show as a whole, while fantastic, I don't think it was nearly as important culturally as The Wire. But it is great, and it is top tier. It's The question is, is it Mount Rushmore? 
does it hit that top four spot? And I'm not saying it's not. What I am saying is I need more time to think about it, to digest it. I do want to see El Camino, which I know is on Netflix. Apparently it's a, a two-hour post-show or sequel, for lack of a better term, I guess, immediately after the end of Breaking Bad, following Jesse's character. I am curious about that. And some people have actually tweeted me and said, Better Call Saul is even better than Breaking Bad. I don't know if that's true, but I will be giving that a go. I'm in this universe now, so I'm probably going to watch El Camino today. I'll probably start Better Call Saul later today or tomorrow and watch that through the weekend and see how far I get. But it looks like that's only four seasons, 10 episodes each, so I should run through that pretty quickly. Nevertheless, it has been uh, a fantastic time talking professional wrestling with you all today, and I want to thank you for listening to our Wednesday night recap show. Everything that you needed to know from NXT and AEW Dynamite, of course, along with a preview of AEW Double or Nothing. Don't forget to listen to our Tuesday show. We break down everything from WWE Raw and SmackDown. I'm joined by Chris Vanini for that one. Uh, a huge interview with Rhea Ripley on that show. Fantastic. I already got a lot of press. Thank you very much to Rhea Ripley. I doubt you're listening, but if you are, thank you for retweeting uh, those shows and getting us a lot of additional exposure. Much appreciated. Very excited to see what happens next week on NXT and AEW will happen Saturday at AEW Double or Nothing. And yes, I didn't mention it at the beginning of the show and I forgot to mention it Tuesday, but if you're still listening as we finish up here on Thursday, AEW Double or Nothing instant analysis coming immediately after the pay-per-view ends on Saturday night. Yes, another three episode week of getting over. But as you can tell, an hour in, I am losing my voice because I'm talking by myself. And with that, I gotta allow the Macho Man to send us out. We got something going that's really big. Look at the school right now and tell them about Macho Madness. Tell them how strong it is and tell them where we're going. Yeah, we get Twilight Zone. Yeah, and how Kogan's got no chance, does he? No, does anybody have a chance against the Macho Man? No. Another no. greatest wrestler, past, present, and future that ever lived. Okay, now say goodbye. Say goodbye. Okay, now get out of here. That's a rock, Randy. Yeah, it is rough. Yeah, wrestling is a rough sport. And I'm in the roughest sport in the sport. I am the number one wrestler in the world today. Come on, Thank you, Randy Savage. And thank you all for listening. Five star ratings and reviews. On Apple Podcasts, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and follow me, Silver Steve Adam. Bye for now.